Greetings, fellow travelers, vagrants, explorers, etc., and welcome to episode 3 of the Retro Wildlands. My name is Nomad, and this is my gaming podcast where I like to share my thoughts and experiences with the retro game I used to play back when I was younger, or maybe a modern game I've played recently. Thank you very much for taking the time to listen to the show today. I really appreciate you spending some time with me as I nerd out on the video games that I love. On today's episode of the Retro Wildlands, we're talking about a game I have to imagine most people have played or at the very least have heard of. That game is The Legend of Zelda A Link to the Past on the Super Nintendo. I have to admit though that this game has been a black spot on my gaming resume for quite a while now. I can't remember all the instances, but I've played this game several times over the past 25 years and I have never completed it. But that black spot has been officially wiped away as I have finally finally finished A Link to the Past, and I am excited to talk to you about it today. Before we get into the episode proper, I wanted to take a little bit and let you all know what's happening behind the curtain here in the Wildlands. As I record this, I just got back from a vacation to Tennessee with the family, and oddly enough, I didn't give myself much time to game. Although, I did finish A Link to the Past while sitting on my bedroom balcony overlooking some beautiful wilderness, so that was pretty stellar. We got a house literally up on a mountain, and it was glorious. We trailblazed through the woodlands, we went into Gatlinburg and Pigeon Forge, and we played some games together at night while drinking ourselves silly. It was a fantastic time. And if you've never been to Tennessee or that particular area around Pigeon Forge or Gatlinburg, I highly recommend it. It was absolutely beautiful out there, and my family and I had a fantastic time. I posted a few snippets of the trip on social media if anyone's into that sort of thing. You can check out the Retro Wildlands on Twitter and Instagram at Retro Wildlands. And speaking of social media, I was thinking about expanding into Facebook in the near future too. Facebook is where my main personal social media presence is, but I haven't really done anything with it in the last several years. So it's probably time I wipe the dust off and see about bringing the Wildlands into that space, so be on the lookout for that. Other than that, our YouTube channel is now live, and we have a whopping one video released as of now, but more are planned in the future. I just don't know when that'll be exactly. If you want to subscribe to the channel so you can be there for the next round of uploads, check us out at Nomads Retro Wildlands. For now, you can check out my in-depth review of Parasite Eve on the PlayStation. I have a few other videos planned, they just need the final touches on them from an editing perspective, and I just need to make the time to do it. I'm hoping to have a new video up by the time episode 4 of this podcast launches next week, but we'll see what happens. Okay, I think that's all the self-promotion I want to do for this episode, so let's get down to business. Let's talk The Legend of Zelda A Link to the Past. I find myself in an interesting spot with this game. Most videos I've watched or podcasts I've listened to have had the host talk about this game from memory since they played it and finished it a couple decades ago. I, on the other hand, just finished this over my vacation last week, so it's still fresh in the old noggin. I really hope I can do this game justice for you on the show. I don't think I'll get much pushback from anyone if I call this game a masterpiece, and I know it's a huge deal for some people that grew up playing this game and talking to their friends or siblings about all the secrets they've found or all the experiences that they've had. I never got to have that specific experience being an only child and having very few friends, but maybe I can a little bit while I geek out with you all here on the show. So grab your boomerang, grab some bombs, and the master sword. Let's begin our journey to save the land of Hyrule.
Originally released on the Super Nintendo back in April 1992 in North America, The Legend of Zelda A Link to the Past and I have had a very complicated relationship over the years. I think the best way I can describe it is, is kind of like this. It's like a complicated on-again, off-again high school relationship. A Link to the Past and I went to school together, but we never really talked to each other. One day, we were put in the same group for a science project and started working together. Then soon enough, an attraction grew, and we started dating. But other games would grab my attention, and the relationship did not last. Super Mario Kart for the Super Nintendo released later in the year and absolutely sunk its hooks into me. Man, I used to play that game a ton with my younger cousin whenever we got together. I got a hold of Mario Paint for the Super Nintendo somewhere in there as well, and it captivated me and my attention more than I care to admit. Then there was a little game called Star Fox that came out of nowhere in early 1993. Oh, and I cannot forget Super Mario RPG Legend of the Seven Stars, which was my very first role-playing game. There were other games that would be sprinkled in here and there, but A Link to the Past was left behind for a few years. I'd pick it back up here and there as time went on, though. So, sort of like coming across the one that got away on your social media, I walked into a GameStop one day during one of the last years in high school I had. They had a used Super Nintendo for sale and a few used game cartridges in stock. And there it was, a copy of A Legend of Zelda A Link to the Past. To this day, I'm not sure what happened to the Super Nintendo I used to play on. I think it belonged to my mom's second husband and he took it when he split, but whatever, it doesn't matter because now I was going to have my very own. I purchased the used system with a copy of A Link to the Past, as well as Super Mario World and Star Fox. So when I got it home, I started playing A Link to the Past again, and I got further into the game than when I stopped playing it last time. I gathered half the crystals I needed in the Dark World, and I was feeling pretty good about completing the game. But it happened again, and the other games took my attention away. Super Mario World was the one that really got my attention this time. If I played this game when I was younger, I really don't remember, but now that I owned it, I played the shit out of it. There was even a point where I remember taking my Super Nintendo on vacation with me. A bunch of my high school friends and I went to Myrtle Beach for a week, and I still remember some of us jumping on it and playing through Super Mario World here and there. One of my favorite memories is one of my buddies just staring at it in awe as he was seven shots deep in tequila and said, Man! This game will always be amazing, you know that, man? Games nowadays have great graphics and polygons and shit, but Super Mario World? Fucking masterpiece. Goddamn masterpiece. Don't think that's really an accurate rendition of how he spoke, but, ah, we'll run with it. So the awesome thing was, we beat that game on that trip. It was glorious and one of my favorite gaming moments of all time. Which is surprising, because with the amount of tequila I drank myself that week, I don't remember much else about the trip, but I definitely remember this. <laughs> Every now and then, I would pop a link to the past in, but never completed it. Finally, I ended up selling my Super Nintendo about a year ago, since I was lucky enough to get a hold of an SNES Classic that had the game preloaded on it. But it wasn't until about a month ago I decided to pick the game back up and really commit to it. It was for a lot of reasons. Obviously, I wanted to talk about it on the podcast, but it was more than that. It was eating at me, like a tapeworm. I knew I owed it to myself to finish it once and for all. It was a friend of mine that I used to work with that finally pushed me over the edge. She's a huge Zelda fan, and there were times we would be on calls for work where we were supposed to be working, but we ended up talking about video games instead. So in honor of those memories and all the times I never committed to this game, it was time to get serious. And finally. After years of on and off again dating, 
A Link to the Past and I finally went all the way. And it was magical, memorable, and I am ready to talk all about the juicy details. I think where I want to start is talking about why this game is so great. First and foremost, another confession, I am not the world's biggest Legend of Zelda fan. I haven't played hardly any of the games in the series, I don't understand how they all fit together, and I've never gone out of my way to play any of them. I started becoming really serious about gaming when I played Resident Evil for the first time on the PlayStation, but I really missed hunkering down with some of the Nintendo's bigger classics. Eventually, I'd like to right that wrong on my gaming resume, but I confess all that to tell you that, even despite not being the biggest fan, A Legend of Zelda A Link to the Past is easily one of my favorite games of all time, so anyone who is or isn't a huge fan of the series will find something to like here. And that's a big part of why this game is so great. Okay, so let's break it down into my personal Triforce of what makes a game truly fantastic. First, the game has to have solid gameplay. It has to be fun to play, pure and simple. Second, the game has to have a solid story. It doesn't need to be a blockbuster, expertly written, or any of that nonsense. just has to have a solid story that gives you the motivation you need to press forward. And finally, the game needs solid exploration. Give the player the feeling that they're discovering new things along the way, and it's the player discovering these things, not the game revealing these things for you. So for me, if you have a game with a great story, solid gameplay, and great exploration, you've got yourself a great game. That's what we have here with A Link to the Past. So let's talk a little bit about the story. There isn't much here, but the story that is here is perfect. So who remembers the title screen for this game? I'm willing to bet most of you are probably replaying the title screen in your head right now, complete with the classic shink of the Master Sword coming down and locking into place into the game's logo. It went a little something like this. Did that give you the tinglys like it did me? Hmm, yeah. Now, if you were patient enough to not smash your start button and try to get into the game right away, you're actually treated with an opening sequence that sets up the story of the game. Personally, I didn't know this existed until after I bought my own Super Nintendo. I never saw it growing up, and I guess it really isn't needed to enjoy the game, but it was really cool when I did discover it, so if you've not seen it, go see it. As far as the story goes, I'm usually a pretty big stickler about spoilers. Ask anyone who knows me, my number one pet peeve of all time is having a video game or movie spoiled for me, so I want to respect that when I talk about games and such. That being said, this game is 30 years old this year, and the story isn't all that deep. So I'm going to talk about it a bit now. If you aren't interested in hearing about the story setup or don't want some of the gameplay elements spoiled, I will do my absolute best to dance around them, but you really should just stop this podcast right now and go find a way to play this game if you haven't or want to experience this game completely fresh. I can't really talk about the game without talking about some of the awesome game mechanics and items you find. Okay, so with that out of the way, let's talk a little story. If you wait for the title screen to fade to black, you're given a short history lesson on the events that lead up to the game's opening. Now that I think about it, I think there's some backstory in the game's instruction manual if you happen to be lucky enough to still have one of those. Like, my mind's going back to, like, comic-style retelling of some of the events, but I could be misremembering. Anyway. Long ago, there were tales of a golden power that was hidden in a place called the Golden Land. Many people tried to seek out this power, and those that did not never returned from the Golden Land. After some time passed, an evil power started to form and flow out of the Golden Land. 
The king at the time had the golden land sealed away by seven wise men. And that should have been that. After many years and the story of the golden land and its power fading to time, a wizard came to the land of Hyrule with the intent of breaking the seal. He killed the king and started to kidnap the descendants of the seven wise men. Zelda was one of these descendants, and when the game opens, you take control of Link, who is woken up by Zelda, speaking to him telepathically. She's locked in the dungeon of the castle and needs to be rescued. When Link gets up and ready to head out, he is greeted by his uncle, whom he lives with, and he tells Link that he's going out and won't be back until morning. He also tells Link to not leave the house. He grabs a sword and shield, and off he goes. Once we have control, we do the only thing that makes sense. We leave the house and set out into a raging thunderstorm to go rescue Zelda. Fuck waiting for our uncle to come back. Now, there are some pretty amazing parts to this game, but the beginning sequence here is one of my favorites. The atmosphere is dark and dreary, and the rain is coming down hard, and it looks awesome on the SNES hardware. The music here is pretty perfect, too. You sort of feel how desperate the situation is, even though you don't really know why you need to save Zelda, you just know that you gotta. The guards you find turn you away and tell you to go home, but fuck them, you're more resourceful than just going through the front door. Eventually, you find a secret way into the lower levels and come across your uncle who is badly wounded. He tells you it's up to you to save Zelda and hands you his sword and shield before he perishes. As you enter the castle proper, you come across the castle guards who are brainwashed and under an evil spell. You have to fight them off and proceed into the dungeon and find and rescue Zelda. Soon you find her and lead her out of the castle through a secret passage. Once you make your way through the sewers, you come up on the Hyrule Sanctuary. A sage is there and promises to look after Zelda, and he tells you that the evil wizard has enveloped himself and a part of the castle in an evil magic, and it's a magic that can only be dispelled by the Master Sword, and it's Link's destiny to claim the sword hidden deep within the Lost Woods. The sage directs you to a nearby village to seek out an elder, who will give you a little bit more information about this awesome quest. From here, the game marks on your map of Hyrule the location of three pendants that you need to retrieve in order to be able to obtain the Master Sword. This is where the game more or less really begins. Other than the marks on your map, you aren't really given too much guidance and it's up to you to explore Hyrule and find the paths and items you need to progress. I absolutely love the opening to this game. It did a fantastic job of setting the stage and getting you invested in the journey. As you play and find more items and get stronger, you really do feel like you're growing along with Link. You start as a timid character fumbling around in the rain, to eventually wielding the Master Sword and making many of the game's enemies your bitch by the end. What it continues to do well is how it gets you to that point with maybe the occasional hint here and there or the sporadic clue hidden in plain sight. So that's the story setup. As far as the gameplay goes, it's pretty iconic in its own right. The game is a top-down perspective, so you're looking down on Link from above. You're pretty much free to explore Hyrule however you want, but you're quickly going to discover obstacles in your way that need to be removed so you can move on to other areas of the game, at least until you find the item you need to remove these obstacles. Your main method of attacking enemies is your sword. Your basic attack is a slash attack, but you can hold your B button down to charge up your sword. Once you hear that little chime, you can let go and Link will do a spinning attack that will hit everything around him and do a hell of a lot more damage. It's a technique you should try to master early and often. Other than your sword, you'll come across other items that you can use when you press your Y button. Probably the most useful for me early on was the boomerang. 
It tended to stun most enemies in place, and if they dropped an item, I could use the boomerang to bring the item to Link, which was pretty neat. As you start collecting these items, like the boomerang, a bow and arrow, a magic hammer, and the amazing hookshot, it sort of becomes the reason why you want to explore the world. What drove me nuts sometimes when I was younger was opening up the inventory and seeing all that empty space to slowly be filled with items. The reason it drove me nuts is because I knew each empty space had to have an item that would eventually fit in it, so I needed to find everything the game had to offer. Most items you'll find are rewards found deep in the game's many dungeons. Usually what happens is the item you will find is the one thing you need to move forward in the game. The power gloves, those are a great example. So with those, you can lift up heavy stones that are blocking your path. Other items, like the magic hammer, are needed to fight the boss in the dungeon it's obtained in. You have to chip away at its mask before you can actually do damage with your sword, and as simple as that sounds, I thought that was revolutionary when I was playing this game when I was younger. Which is another thing I want to talk about with this game, the dungeons. So while you're pretty free to explore Hyrule on the surface, the game really shines when you're diving deep into the dungeons. Every one has more or less the same premise. You need an item inside. Example, one of the pendants you need to get the Master Sword. Each dungeon has a treasure item you need to obtain that will aid you in your quest, and each dungeon has a boss you need to defeat in order to escape the dungeon with the item that you just acquired. It's a simple concept, except each dungeon is sort of a puzzle that needs solving. You have to find keys to open certain doors, you have to solve environmental puzzles to open passageways, things like that. Most of the time though, these puzzles are pretty obvious, especially if you can find the treasure item that's in that dungeon because that treasure item is usually what you need to move forward. Other times you might find yourself banging your head against the wall because the solution isn't all that obvious, but at least for me that didn't happen too terribly often. I'd like to think I'm a semi-smart individual, but that's up for debate, I'm sure. <laughs> so you have a map that gets filled out the more you explore, or you can find a complete map somewhere in the dungeon itself if you can locate it. But even with the map, you may get turned around a lot or have to backtrack and lose track of where you're going in the first place. Plus, I hated having to stop, open my map, get my bearings, close it, and move on. Then there were some dungeons that just suck hard regardless of what you do, like the Ice Palace later in the game. Now when I say it sucks, I don't mean it was badly designed or anything like that, it was just frickin' hard. The majority of the floor was ice, the enemies were plentiful, and I died a lot. If I didn't get killed by the enemies hopping and sliding around, I'd slide into the many spikes lining the floors or the walls. Or I'd slip and fall into a hole. That was always a fun one. I got lost a lot in this dungeon, and while I can honestly say I didn't use an internet guide for my final playthrough for this game, I did have to cave and look up a guide for this one specific dungeon. I just... Adult me didn't have the patience to keep sliding around in circles and impaling myself on spikes. Now, if I were still young little nomad, absolutely I would slide in circles all day. Aside from the difficulty spikes, the dungeons were absolutely fun to play and great to conquer. What makes some of the dungeons more memorable were the boss monsters at the end, for better or worse. Do you guys remember the Tower of Hera, the dungeon where you get the last of the pendants? That fucking snake caterpillar thing, whatever the hell it was, you had to fight on that platform there. If it pushed you off, you had to fall all the way down to the previous floor. And the only way to damage it was slashing its tail. And what made that battle hard was the monster didn't really have a pattern that you could figure out. It would just juke to the left or the right and send you falling down and down. 
So what's worse than dying in this fight? It was definitely falling to the floor below, walking all the way back up the stairs, then jumping back on the platform to fight again. It was punishing the more you did it, but man, that feeling when you finally did beat that thing, that feeling of accomplishment was like nothing else. And that went with all the other bosses too. Some were pretty easy, and then there were others that were a pretty decent challenge that made you think. Another of my favorites was the dungeon in the village of outcasts in the Dark World. The dungeon itself didn't knock my socks off, but the way you had to go about getting the boss to appear by having it walk into the light, light that would only shine if you bombed a hole in an area above that floor outside of the dungeon in the village itself, if I recall correctly, I thought that was really cool and a nice little touch. And that's another reason this game is so special with little details like that. Oh, and that reminds me, I haven't even touched on one of the game's best gameplay mechanics, the Dark World. So if the game area wasn't big and expansive enough on its own, Nintendo more or less found the best way to double the area you can play in by giving us the Dark World. A little less than halfway through the game, you're transported into the Dark World, which is kind of a mirror world of sorts. The Dark World is what used to be the Golden Land. The main gate of Hyrule Castle in the Light World is now a portal to the Dark World, and evil is just spilling out all over the place. As if the game wasn't fun enough, now you get to go to the Dark World. So the Dark World adds a few things to the game, obviously. Story-wise, you now have more dungeons to explore and more items to find. From an exploration standpoint, you can now navigate to some areas in the Dark World that you weren't able to get to in the Light World, and vice versa. So it's a puzzle in and of itself to navigate between these worlds to get to areas you might not have been able to get access to in order to find more items or treasure. I feel like if I had siblings or friends that played this game when I did when I was a kid, these experiences would have sparked some great playground talk. We didn't have the internet back in the day, obviously, so walkthroughs and item location guides didn't exist in that sense. What you learned, you'd share with a friend, or what you didn't know, you'd hear from them. When I found something like a secret passage behind a wall, or a cave hidden underneath a garden, I always felt like I'd just found the fountain of youth. There was this sense of wonder when I discovered something. Sometimes I might find what I thought was an entrance to somewhere, but it was actually the exit, and I just didn't find the right doorway or passageway yet. And that drove me more nuts knowing that there was an entrance to a secret area that I haven't found yet. Sometimes items were on a cliff, just out of reach. The magic of exploring the light and the dark worlds was finding ways to get to these places you couldn't reach using what items you had in your possession at the time, and a little bit of your wits. I think what stuck out for me about the dark world though was how it was presented. The landscape has changed. Once luscious green fields are now barren, deserts are now dank and dark swamplands, and the music is more menacing, not as carefree as what plays in the light world. If you remember in the beginning, the story opening mentioned that people long before were looking for the golden land and they never returned. You eventually come across some of these people and their forms are changed and they are no longer human. Now if I remember the story right, those that are now in the Dark World take different forms, and it's dependent on what's in their hearts as people. Since most of the people that were lost in the Golden Land were just selfish bastards looking for the golden power, many of the characters in this world are monsters or scary-looking abominations. Some are a little cuter, a little tamer. 
Link himself transforms into a rabbit when he first enters the Dark World, and I assume that's to showcase his pure, perhaps timid nature. But it was a really nice piece of detail to do that, and it really speaks to the magic of this world as well as the evil that it's enveloped it. To be able to navigate the Dark World in your true form, you have to come across an item in a previous dungeon called the Moon Pearl. And until you get that, you're pretty defenseless in the Dark World, and it is truly a scary place when you can't defend yourself. So next up, I wanted to highlight some of the items you'll find along the way, because aside from everything else I've talked about up to this point, it's the items themselves that are what make this game great. Now again, I'm not a diehard Zelda fan at all, so I'm making assumptions here, but it's my understanding that many of these items that make their appearance in this game will crop up in other games in the series as well. So the first one I want to talk about, because I like swords so much, is the sword, the Master Sword. You can probably argue that if you play video games in any capacity, Link is a character that is fairly recognizable. Other than his appearance, what solidifies his character are his signature shield, but more so, the Master Sword. It has a very distinct blue hilt, and when I was little, I would have sold my soul to have a Master Sword in real life, even if it was a cheap knockoff replica. What really resonated with me as a kid was the idea that Link was just an average dude that became something legendary, and it was that sword that got him there. The sword wasn't just for fighting, that sword was a symbol. A symbol of bravery, courage, and wisdom. God, I love that sword. Oh, did any of you ever get a hold of a magazine subscription to Nintendo Power? I know I just went off on a really big tangent, but bear with me here. I don't remember what the issue was, but one had a fold-out poster of the Master Sword in the stone pedestal you find it in-game deep within the Lost Woods. The artwork was just fantastic, and I made it a point to hang it up on my wall in my bedroom as a kid. Unless it got packed away somewhere, I don't know what ultimately happened to it. Although one day, I saw it again in a movie, of all things. Again, not to get too far off track, but did anyone happen to catch the movie Ready Player One? Based on a fantastic book of the same name, that poster cropped up there. No spoilers if you haven't seen the movie, but near the end of the movie, you're shown a kid's bedroom, and he has a metric shit ton of old pop culture stuff in there. Old retro games, action figures, posters, you name it. And on his wall, to the left of the screen, was that Legend of Zelda poster showing the Master Sword from that specific issue of Nintendo Power. It only flashes on screen twice, I think, but I saw it. I remember jumping up and shouting it out loud when it was being played at my sister-in-law's house, and everyone looked at me like I was an idiot, but I did not care. The kid in that movie may as well have had my poster. I went home and tried looking for my original poster and boxes in the attic, but I never found it. So I jumped on eBay and just happened to find somebody that was selling it. So today, it's hanging in my home office next to a couple Final Fantasy posters and the Orcrist the sword from The Hobbit that Thorin Oakenshield carries through the Misty Mountains and the Mirkwood in The Hobbit. It was a fantastic gift from my wife, I will say. Moving on from the Master Sword, let's talk about some of the other gems you can find in your adventure. So I mentioned the boomerang already. That one was sort of my bread and butter item for maybe the first third of the game. It was a solid item, reliable like an old six-shooter. The bow and arrow were another solid choice, but I didn't use them too terribly much. 
I felt like the arrows flew a little too slow for it to be effective against some enemies, but I gotta admit, I did love that shunk sound of when I did connect with my target or hit a wall. Once you're much later in the game and you get your hands on the silver arrows, this weapon becomes infinitely more powerful and useful. Bombs were pretty cool, but I never really used them to fight battles now that I think about it. I could never get the timing of the fuse right. I felt like it just took too long to run down before the bomb exploded, and I know you can sort of cook them like a grenade and throw them at the enemy at the last second, but I never made them a point to use them in battle. I used them more for opening secret passageways or operating switches I couldn't quite reach. What's another one? Oh, the magic cape. That was pretty cool. I actually never got my hands on the magic cape until I settled in to play this game to completion recently. So here's how it works. It renders Link invisible, and while he's invisible, he won't take any damage, and he can walk through some objects. Absolutely a necessity for some of the game's hidden treasures. Let's see here. Oh, and those medallions? How about those things? Did anyone ever consistently use those? There was the Ether medallion, Quake medallion, and Bombos medallion? I'm thinking saying that right? They used a lot of magic power, but they cast a spell that would affect all enemies on screen, usually killing them outright. I never used them other than just to see what they did initially, then I would just put them back in my pocket and never bring them out unless I had to. Not really sure why though, but hey, they are pretty gnarly. Oh, and that reminds me, I did use the Aether Medallion to be able to see some invisible floors that are in some of the later dungeons. I found that out on accident. <laughs> Almost not worth it since it sucks down so much magic power and the floor only flashes on screen for a moment, but it had its uses. Looking back, I was a stickler for my magic points, so I rarely used anything that required them unless absolutely necessary. I think it's because survival horror games trained me to be stingy with limited resources. But now that I'm thinking about it, here's an item that doesn't use any magic. It has incredible reach and it can stun some enemies on contact. I'm sure you all know what I'm talking about already. I am talking about the hookshot. It is the best item in the game, and you cannot convince me otherwise. It was absolutely amazing. The biggest thing it can do is attach itself to an object and pull you towards it, allowing you to travel over gaps or just move across the screen really quickly. And like I mentioned, when you hit some enemies, it would stun them, allowing you to chop them into bits with your sword. And if that weren't enough, it could also grab items and drag them to you. Did that enemy over there drop a rupee, but you don't want to walk all the way back to pick it up? Hookshot. Did you cut some bushes down and a piece of heart is just sitting there idle, waiting for you to pick it up, but you've already passed it by? Hookshot. It was such a great item. Like I said, I could be mistaken, but I believe the hookshot shows up in other Zelda games too. There was a point when I played Super Smash Bros. Melee on the GameCube, and I remember Link would use it as one of his throw attacks. At least I'm pretty sure, and I'm not imagining it. Let me think here, what else is there? Oh, the fire and ice rods. They were pretty cool for what they were. I know you had to use them for a couple of the later game bosses, but other than that, I personally did not use them much, because again, magic power, I'm stingy. I used the fire rod here and there though, just to see enemies get caught on fire and writhe in agony before expiring, because we all love fire, right? The bug catching net was neat. You could use it to catch bees and fairies and put them into bottles for later use, because that's what you do with fairies. You stuff them into bottles and let them wait it out. <laughs> I liked keeping at least one fairy in a bottle if I could. If you die, the fairy will come out of the bottle and revive you with a little bit of health. 
I was in absolute awe when I saw this happen for the first time. Super useful when you're in the heart of a dungeon and you kick the bucket. I do love how you get this net, though. You find a sick boy in the village, and he just hands it right over. As a kid, it never bothered me. It was just another item. Now, as an adult, I took the net from a kid who's probably actually dying, but yay, bug-catching net for me, Wee! So the last items I think I'll mention are the upgraded males you can find. Those are the blue and red colored shirts that change Link's appearance, but give him some decent damage resistance. Those were pretty okay. While I appreciated the benefits, I didn't get super excited whenever I found them. I was always hoping for a new gadget or a weapon, but instead I got new clothes, just like getting socks for Christmas. But still, they were pretty useful and they were pretty okay. Okay, so now that we're done with items, let's talk about cutting down bushes. I made mention of this when I was talking about the hook shot, and I didn't want to forget about one of the best parts of the whole game. Using the legendary Master Sword as a hedge trimmer. If you've played this game, you must have known the joy that came from just chopping down tall grass and bushes wherever you went. Sometimes you can find items hidden within, and it made it all worthwhile. But even if there were no items, you'd do it anyway because it was so satisfying. Sure, Hyrule needs saved and Zelda needs rescued, but this man's lawn is just way out of control. It is our duty as a Knight of Hyrule to tame his lawn so his homeowners association doesn't pitch a fit. Because that's what heroes do. Oh, and how about those pots? See a pot, you have to pick it up and fling it across the room to see if there are any items in it. Every time, without fail especially in a person's home, and doubly so if that person is in the home to watch you do it. Sorry about your pots, Denise. I'm low on health, and I need a heart piece. And speaking of vandalism and other heinous crimes, every single one of you listening to this podcast who's played this game, I can guarantee you that you've beaten the shit out of some of the poor, defenseless chickens that are roaming around. Admit it! You're roaming around the village, minding your own business, And here comes one, hopping down the street. So what do you do? You draw your sword and you attack it. You strike it. It flees in terror. You give chase. Maybe you pick it up and toss it like Tuesday's trash. It runs, screaming. You shoot arrows. You drop bombs. Then maybe you get bored and maybe you move on. Maybe you complete your quest and save all of Hyrule. You get a hero's welcome and all is right with the world. But you know how much of a monster you are. And that chicken knows it too. So enjoy your victory. Be the hero, because God knows you are anything but. (laughs) I am not going to lie. I've beaten my fair share of chickens. But you know what I found out? A friend of mine told me that if you beat on the same chicken too much, a swarm of chickens will come in and actually deal damage to you and potentially kill you. Now, I personally did not beat on a chicken enough to do this on my own, but I found a YouTube video showing it, and it is pretty amazeballs. Really, when I think about it, it's a little touch that the developers really didn't need to put in the game, but I appreciate the fact that they did. Okay, and with that, I think it's time to wind this one down. When I finally set out to finish this game, there was one more mission I had in my mind that I needed to accomplish. I wanted to see if, by the time I was done playing, I could answer the question, why do so many people love this game, and why is it such a masterpiece? 
Everything I mentioned in this episode is a solid case for why this game is so good, but to wrap it up into one package, I think what makes this game so amazing is the sense of wonder the game gives you as you play it. Many times, I'd come across a block path or a ledge that I just couldn't reach. Other times, I'd cut a bush away and find a hole that led into a hidden treasure chamber. I always looked forward to the next dungeon so I could get another item and allow me to explore farther into the world. Finding secret passages, locating new items, getting stronger and more skilled as I went. The Legend of Zelda A Link to the Past just about perfected the journey a regular person takes to become a hero. You start off weak, unsure of where you fit into this world. You get stronger as you go, though, and more confident. You get stronger as you go, though, and a little more confident. The game does a great job of challenging you throughout and makes you think. By the end of the game, you truly feel like a legendary hero, the one that everyone says you are. You've memorized the landscape, and Hyrule is no longer a foreign land. It's your kingdom, and you're bound to protect it, and you want to protect it by fulfilling your quest and taking this journey of discovery. I felt very complete by the journey's end. I didn't just save the princess, I became a hero. I became a knight of Hyrule. And as the credits were rolling, I felt a little tug on my cheeks. A small smile was forming. There aren't very many video games that can make you feel this way today. The fact that this game is 30 years old, and it can do that to me today? If that doesn't speak to how wonderful this game is, I don't know what else will. And that does it for The Legend of Zelda A Link to the Past for the Super Nintendo. Thank you so, so much for listening to the show. I really do appreciate it. I'm sure there are probably parts of the game I didn't mention that you might have been hoping for, like some of the other items you get, other bosses you fight, or some of the secrets you can find, so I am sorry if I didn't get to the one thing you wanted me to ramble about. I really do hope I did this game some justice, though. It's one of the greatest of all time for a reason, and I'm happy I finally saw it to the end and removed that black spot on my gaming resume. The next question, though, is, where do I go next in my Zelda adventures? I was thinking about going back to where it all started on the original Nintendo, but we'll see. If you have any thoughts of where I should go, you can reach out to me over on Instagram or Twitter. Find me at RetroWildlands. I'll be back again next week with another episode. We're going to stick with the Super Nintendo for another week and talk about another great retro game that's reignited a passion within me now that I'm replaying it. It's a time-traveling, side-scrolling beat-em-up starring some of the coolest ninjas around. Until then, my friends, my name is Nomad, and you can find me roaming the retro wildlands.